0: Last week, I started a new series called The Remnant, and that's on the website. If you haven't heard that, I would highly encourage you to go listen to that first foundational teaching in this series. But our master text this morning is in Matthew chapter 7, so go ahead and be turning there if you will. And today, I thought what I would do is do something similar to what I did last week and give you a little spoonful of sugar first to help the medicine go down. So uh, I'm gonna go back to uh, our church bulletin failures and give you another few of those. Did you like those last week? Okay, so let me give you a couple more of these. Uh, Here's uh, church bulletin failure number one for today. Check this out, Mrs. Smith and Mrs. Rankin will sing a duet. The Lord knows why. (laughs) (laughs) Now, Now, by the way, can I just make a comment about this? This is why proper punctuation is so important, okay? Because I think the name of the song is The Lord Knows Why. So all of you people that, um, (sighs) I get frustrated at texting sometimes because people don't use punctuation at all. And sometimes you have to try to discern what in the world are they trying to say here? Right, so, okay, so this would have been correct had there been a comma after duet and then quotation marks around the Lord knows why, but since there was no punctuation, it was insulting to Mrs. Smith and Mrs. Rankin. Mrs. Smith and Mrs. Rankin will sing a duet, the Lord knows why, so proper punctuation will keep you out of that that kind of trouble, okay? Uh, Next one, Um, during church, masks must be worn and hands satanized. I, I, I don't know that I would want to be in a church where they require your hands to be Satanized, but, um, and don't even get me started on the mask thing, okay? Don't get me, do not get me started. We'll be here for a while. Uh, next, weight washers will meet at 7 p.m. Please enter through the large double doors. Come on, come on. Can we not be a little bit more sensitive than that, right? Oh, my goodness. All right. All right. Well, we had fun with that. So now let's uh, have fun by going to the scriptures and getting fed by the word of God. If you're at Matthew 7, stand with me, if you will. And let's honor the word of God as it's being proclaimed among us. So verse 13 of Matthew chapter 7. These are the words of the master Jesus. Enter through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate, and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate, and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. And all God's people say, Amen. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. Praise the Lord. So in this teaching on the remnant today, um, the name of this particular Teaching. I mean the, the series name is The Remnant But this particular teaching I'm going to entitle The Happiness Paradox The Happiness Paradox So I'm going to explain what I mean by that As the teaching unfolds The reason for the name of that teaching Will become very apparent to you As the teaching unfolds But first I want to go over a little bit of ground That we covered last week And talk about the, the term The Remnant The Remnant uh, why did I call my series that? And what is a remnant? Uh, so let me refer to what we referred to last week, Romans 9.27, where that term appears. And it says that Isaiah cries out concerning Israel. Though the number of the Israelites be like the sand by the sea, only the remnant will be saved. So what is a remnant? Well, that word that was translated into English as remnant is the Greek word remnant katelema, and it means this, a small residue, a small residue, and by implication, it means a small few or a remainder. So it means a very small few and small remainder. So the New Testament application, now, of course, in Romans 9, that's in the New Testament, but he's actually quoting the book of Isaiah, which is Old Testament. So let me give you a, a New Testament reference for that idea of remnant. And again that we looked at this last week and we read it as our master text here just now today. So let me reread this with some of these words emboldened for you for emphasis' sake. Okay? Once again, enter through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and many enter through it but small is the gate and narrow the way that leads to life and only a few find it. Now, unlike the popular teaching in this culture today that most people will make it to heaven, that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches only a small remnant will actually make it. The masses are on that broad way that leads to destruction. You don't have to look around very far in our society to know that that's true. So, the remnant means a very small remainder. Now, as I'm talking about this, I realize that if you've been serving the Lord for a while, you, you may ask, well, Andy, how is this pertinent to me as a, as a believer? I mean, I'm already in the family of God. I already walk with Christ, so that doesn't really pertain to me, does it? Well, you might remember that I recently completed a series uh, called In the Likeness of His Resurrection, and in that series, I leaned heavily upon Matthew chapter 25, where I talked quite a bit about the ten virgins. And uh, the uh, a virgin, by the way, is a, uh, a symbolic for purity. And we remember that all ten virgins were looking for and awaiting the return of the bridegroom. But only five were ready when the bridegroom actually did arrive. Only five of the ten were ready, so the other five that were not ready, they didn't make it, okay? So I want to read to you out of Matthew uh, chapter 7 again, that's, again, we read Matthew chapter 7 in our master text, but if you drop down to verse 21, uh, this little passage relates to that point that I just made. Uh, So I want to read this together, and then I'm going to elaborate on it a bit. Again, Jesus speaking, he says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many, many, not a few, but many will say to me on that day, he's talking about the day of judgment, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of God lawlessness. Now, I want to deal with something here for a moment. These were people that actually operated to a certain degree in the miraculous. They said that that they prophesied, they drove out demons, they performed miracles. How can a person that operates in the miraculous end up falling away? How how can that be possible? But yet we see it uh, actually play out in the New Testament in Jesus' ministry You know, if you read uh, Luke Chapter 10, there's an account There of when Jesus sent out His disciples two by two On a missionary journey. Now at that time There were more disciples than Just the twelve. Now not a lot of people Know this. But typically when we think of Jesus as disciples, we think of that, that Those twelve. But Did you know that there was actually seventy Two disciples that walked With Jesus at one point? Did you know that? And so when Jesus sent out these disciples on the missionary journey, there were 72 of them. And then when they came back, if you you look at Luke chapter 10, verse 17, um, they reported to Jesus what happened on that missionary journey. And they said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. So they had experienced the miraculous when they went out on this missionary journey. But then when you jump over to John chapter 6... Um, Jesus is engaging the Jews, and he's saying some pretty hard things. He's drawing some lines in the sand. And, And it says in verse 66 of John chapter 6, 666, the only place in the Bible where there's a 666. And guess what that verse says? It says, from that time on, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. These were the same people that experienced some of this that you see right here. They prophesied in his name, drove out demons, etc. Some of the same people that when the teaching got hard, when he drew lines in the sand, they're like, wow, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? And then from that time forward, many turned back and no longer followed him. So that's why I felt led to give you some characteristics of remnant people starting last week. And I'm going to give you a bit more of that today, but let's do a recap of last week. So some characteristics of remnant people. First of all, they are diverse in background and united in belief. So Revelation 5.9 says that the kingdom of God will be filled with people of every tongue and tribe and nation. So they're diverse in background, united in belief. They're also people of the word. Psalm 119.11 says, I've hidden your word in my heart that I may not sin against you. Remnant people are people who are serious about the consumption of God's word. Thirdly, Remnant people are committed to walking by faith. Romans 10, 17 says faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Uh, remnant people are serious about growing in faith. Number four, they are people of the gathering. What's that mean? What you're doing this morning. They're people of the gathering. Psalm 69, 9 and John 2:17 both says of the Messiah, Jesus, that zeal for your house will consume me. So if you want to be like Jesus, which that should be our goal, And if zeal for the house of God consumed Jesus, it should consume us as well. And a fifth one that I talked about kind of off the cuff last week that weren't in your notes, but you could write this down too, is that a fifth characteristic of remnant people is that they are people of no compromise with the world. No compromise with the world. We referenced James 4.4 on that one where it says that um, if you wish to be a friend of the world, you make yourself an enemy of God. Did you hear what I said? If you wish to be a friend of the world, you make yourself an enemy of God. That's what it says. All right. So now today I'm going to give you just one other characteristic of remnant people. And remnant people are people of the cross. People of the cross. What do I mean by that? All right. So I'm going to elaborate on this. I'm going to reference first for you Luke 9 verses 23 through 26. So let's read this together. I have it up on the screen for you. Then Jesus said to all of them, if anyone wants to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world, yet lose or forfeit his very self? Now let me pause right there. If you like the King James uh, New King James that uses the word soul right there, uh, forfeit his very soul. I actually did a word study on that, and, and this rendering is actually a bit more accurate. It doesn't say soul in the uh, Greek. It actually says self. So I think what we can, can discern from that is that when we don't follow Jesus and we follow the world, we not only have the risk of losing our soul, but we, listen to this, we have the risk of losing our very self our identity, who we are. It's both of those things, your soul and yourself. So I think that that rendering um, says a lot there. Verse 26, If anyone is ashamed of me in my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory and in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Now, there's three action words here, three action phrases that I want you to really understand, okay? So I'm going to start from verse 23 again and just read uh, one or two verses again. Then Jesus said to them all, if anyone wants to come after me, he must do what? Deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. What does that mean? It means sometimes you have to die to your own desires, that I means sometimes you're not going to get to do what your flesh wants to do. That means that sometimes you're going to have to make your agenda God's agenda. Your desires have to become his desires. You have to die to your old carnal self and live for Jesus. All right, but that's not all a bad news thing, okay? In fact, it's a good news thing. I'm going to get some, to some good news here in a moment. But I'm going to read you also 1 Corinthians 6 verses 19 and 20 on this point. So read along with me. Do not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. I'm going to underline that. You are not your own. You are bought at a price. Therefore, glorify God with your body. If you're in Christ, you no longer belong to yourself. Okay. You become a servant, you become a slave. To Christ. That's the, that's the only, listen, if you don't have that understanding in making a commitment to walk with Christ, you're coming in with a completely wrong attitude. When you come to Christ, you lay down your life, you lay down yourself and take up your cross and follow him. And I think the, this watered-down, distilled, Americanized version of the gospel leaves that element out. And so when people make their commitment to follow Christ, it's really more of a self-serving commitment. Well, it's, I just want to escape hell, but I'm, I really just kind of want to do what I want to do um, and, you know, have Jesus bless it. That's not the right attitude in coming to the Lord. We come to the Lord laying down ourselves on the brazen altar and becoming his servant. We got a rousing amen on that one. It, you didn't like that, did you? Did you not like that? That's what the Bible says. Yeah, okay. I'm going to give you some good news about that in a minute. Um, but first I want to say this. You know, as Donna and I have taken inventory of our lives recently, um, you know, we have sort of observed, and I guess this really never dawned on us until recently because it's just our lifestyle, but we sort of observed that, wow, our lives really don't even belong to us. You know, we look around at other people who are seemingly enjoying their, their, you know, their recreation and their ease and their comfort, and we look at our lives of constant service to others, and we're like, wow, our lives really are not our own. And yes, service to others really is the way of the cross. But, lest you erroneously believe that taking up your cross is a life of drudgery, let me encourage you, okay? So I want you to look at this graph that I've made here, because this is a really good illustration of the way of the world and the way of the cross. So on the left there is a diagram of the way of the world. and At the, at the bottom, it says unrestrained lifestyle. There at the bottom, it says unrestrained lifestyle. You can see that that diagram says that there's a lot of wiggle room there. There's a lot of, it's the broad road right? That unrestrained lifestyle is a very broad road. But as you continue down that road, it gets narrow and narrower until it eventually leads to bondage, loss of freedom, and ultimate destruction. That's the way of the world. There's a hook in the bait. The bait looks really great. You take the bait, and then it's great for a while, and then you're hooked, and then there's a loss of freedom, there's bondage, and then ultimately, there can be destruction, the loss of yourself, the loss of your soul. Okay, so that's the way of the world. Well, the way of the cross is exactly the opposite. The way of the cross is a disciplined lifestyle, holiness, which may seem very narrow, and it is. It's the narrow way initially, but as you continue on that way, guess what happens? You begin to enjoy the freedom that God offers in his kingdom. So you have freedom and peace. So it's a The way of the world and the way of the cross is is diametrically opposite. If you want to live an unrestrained lifestyle now, okay, go ahead, knock yourself out. You're going to pay a price later on. But if you want to discipline yourself now according to what God tells you, it may seem very restrictive at first, but you enjoy freedom that other people don't have, that don't live like that. In fact, I want to read to you, a, a, uh, something that I posted This is a, a quote by yours truly That I posted on my, my Facebook page uh, I don't know, two or three years ago I can't remember when But I, I, I wanted to read this to you verbatim Because I want you to get this concept right here Okay. So read along with me One of the biggest lies Perpetrated on mankind Is that life is about being Quote, happy The pursuit of happiness As man defines it has led to more shipwrecked lives and shattered families than can be counted. What is happiness anyway? Getting everything you want all the time? Having your highest aspirations realized? There have been a lot of people who have had those things and yet led unhappy, unfulfilled, and broken lives. Actually, the pursuit of earthly comfort as one's highest aim is a tragically wrong goal. Jesus said, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and yet lose his own soul or his own self? Now, if you were here last week, you remember the testimony of Brent and Samantha Denny. And one thing that struck me about that testimony is that when they were living that unrestrained lifestyle that Samantha described, well, they were unhappy, unhealthy, and financially strapped. But when they decided to sell out to Jesus, no compromise, things began to change. Yeah, and now, now wait a minute, there's more to it. Now you can, you can clap after this. And now Samantha is off of all of her medications, their home life is happy, and God has blessed them financially. Now you can clap. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. See, living for God is better than anything the world has to offer, folks. It reminds me of this verse right here. Psalm 35, 27. Let the Lord be magnified, who has pleasure in the prosperity of his servants." And actually, that word prosperity is a bit narrow. Because that word prosperity, as it's uh, translated into the English... Uh, by the King James and the New King James. I mean, that's, that is an appropriate word. But if you look at the, the, the Hebrew, the word is actually shalom, who has pleasure in the shalom of his servant. What's shalom mean? It means prosperity, peace, happiness, productivity, fruitfulness. Actually, that one word shalom, to fully understand it, you would need an entire paragraph in the, in the English to fully understand what shalom means. Prosperity is a part of shalom, but it's actually a very small part of shalom. Shalom means, man, you're blessed in every area of your life, you're blessed. That's what shalom means. You know, in my case, Donna and I have always lived a very restrained lifestyle since coming to Christ. And when I say restrained, I don't mean that we avoid just the so-called big sins, Instead, we also examine ourselves regarding our attitudes, our motives, and even the way that we spend our time. And listen, when I compare the results of our lives compared to a lot of the people around us, you know, I'm just amazed at the order and peace in our lives compared to the disorder and stress that I see in a lot of other people's lives. It's very sad. You know, even when Donna and I first got together, you know, we practiced this lifestyle of taking up our cross and giving up ownership of our bodies to the Lord. Now, if I could get just a little personal with you for a moment, I feel led to let you in on a little private part of our lives, if you don't mind. You know, when Donna and I were courting prior to getting married, we were not intimate with one another. We save that for our wedding night. And a lot of people might say, well, don't you need to take a test drive before you buy the car? Well, okay, I know that that's the way that a lot of people live. And look at the divorce rate in this nation. How has test driving the car worked out for most people so far? But Donna and I are about to celebrate our 30th wedding anniversary this month. Praise God. Hallelujah. See, listen, folks. I'll put my results of obeying God. I'll put my results of obeying God up against anyone else's results any day who live just to please themselves. I'll take that comparison any day. See, the Bible tells us to judge ourselves so that we don't come under judgment. So remnant people are not people who make excuses for their compromise and then chalk it up as grace. I want to say that again. Remnant people are not people who make excuses for their compromise and then chalk it up as grace. Rather, look at the screen. Here's a key thought for for today. Rather, remnant people see grace as the reason we now respond to our Savior as servants. Does that make sense? You see, a lot of people attend church just to appease their consciences. But inwardly, they're still in love with the world. And once again, James 4, 4 tells us if you wish to be a friend of the world, you've made yourself an enemy of God. So if you've been in the habit of living mostly for yourself, well, it's not too late to repent of that and turn over a new leaf like Brent and Samantha described last week. You see, remnant people are people who are serious about their walk with the Lord. And that's what I, as a pastor, have been called to help you to understand, that this Americanized, passive form of Christianity is not true biblical Christianity, ladies and gentlemen. I want to say that again. This Americanized, passive Selfish, self serving form of Christianity is not true biblical Christianity. Which leads to another key point for this morning that true biblical Christianity is not passive, but rather proactive. What do I mean by that? You don't just sit back and eat Doritos and watch home shopping network and expect God to bless you, it's proactive. Uh, the, the apostle Paul said that he strained toward his high call in Christ. He strained toward it. He strained toward that mark of the high call in Christ. It will take some effort on your part. Listen, your 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 effort doesn't save you. Jesus did that on the cross. That's all by grace, faith in His grace. But man, if you want to, uh, if you want to to reach your your highest potential in Christ, if you want to. If you want to fulfill why Christ has put you here on this earth in the first place, if you want to walk in your anointing, if you want to walk in your full calling, if you want to get your full reward, there's got to be some effort on your part in seeking God. If the Bible is anything, it's a chronicling of people who sought God and got blessed for it and people who blew it and didn't serve God and paid a price. Those of you who are parents of teenagers, you know how sometimes you just want to take your kids by the shoulders and get nose to nose with them to help them to understand their foolishness in certain areas, right? And that's a really good image, by the way, of what pastors should be doing with their congregations, at least from time to time. Boy, there are times when I just want to take people by the shoulders and just plead with them. That please give up this lackadaisical, carnal, me-first way that you approach your Christian walk. That's not going to get you anywhere. As a matter of fact, it could result in your spiritual shipwreck. That's why a common theme woven throughout many of my teachings is a line taken from Ephesians 5.14. You know what that says? Wake up, O sleeper, and rise from the dead. And Christ will shine on you. Amen. Amen. You want Christ to shine on you? Wake up out of your spiritual slumber for goodness sake. Then you will start to experience some of the benefits in this life of walking with the Lord. Are there benefits in this life of walking to the Lord? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, there's trials and temptations and persecutions too. We do have to endure those things. But there's benefits in this life as well as the next to walking with the Lord. Praise God. Wake up, O sleeper, and rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. All right, so what's at stake here, okay? I'm coming down home stretch, but I want to give you this diagram that I've made up of what's at stake, and the things that when you when you sell out to Christ, there's a loss and a gain category, and I want to go over those with you really quickly. Now, these are not in your notes, but but this is just something that I think that Will help our perspectives. Okay, first of all, on the loss category, when you really walk with Christ in a serious manner, there's a uh, you you lose your sense of independence. You lose your sense of independence, and you gain a dependence upon God. See your your own independence. If you've been around long enough, if you're past the age of 30 or 40 or my age, pushing 60. If, if, you know, you've learned by experience, you don't, you don't know the best path for your life all the time. You think you do. And you've made decisions thinking that you know the best way, and then it ends up in horrible outcome. So you have to understand that, wow, you know, I'm, as a Christian, I'm kind of glad to give up my, my sense of independence and depend instead on God who knows everything. Praise God. All right, another uh, issue at stake here in the loss category is your right to direct your own affairs. If you're in Christ, I'm sorry to have to be the bearer of bad news, but this is actually good news. But you don't have the right to direct your own affairs anymore. Oh, boy, that hit you between the eyes, didn't it? You're a servant now. So, so Jesus gave us. An instruction manual, God gave us an instruction manual And we are his servants And we give up our way of doing things To the way he tells us to do things Praise the Lord So you lose your right to direct your own affairs And the gain, however, is that with God Who knows all things He directs the affairs of your life And it's always good Even if you have to give up something that you want In the beginning There's always a blessing on the backside to that but if you do things your own way, you hang on your own own independence, oh, I, I know what's best, I don't have to do it God's way, well, you may enjoy that for a little while, but there's a hook in the bait, you're going to pay a price later on, all right, let's keep going down this list, in the lost category, there's fear of the future and anxiety about your needs and wants, which is why you see people scratch and claw and lie and cheat to get ahead, okay, i Hey, I know Christians like that. I have seen that firsthand with Christians who will lie. Well, maybe I should say churchgoers. I don't know that someone who lives a lifestyle of lying and cheating should be called a Christian. They might be a churchgoer. But I've seen churchgoers lie and cheat and and be manipulative in order to get what they want instead of just having faith and trusting God. Okay? So... So when you live a life independent of God, there's fear of the future, anxiety about your needs and wants, but when you live in Christ, there's assurance that God has you covered. So it's a life of faith, which gives you peace. Hallelujah. In the lost category, there's often damaged relationships in living for yourself, but with God, there's favor, the favor of God, which actually gives you favor with people. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. In the lost category, living independently of God and His ways often results in mental and emotional baggage and lots of regret. Whereas living for God results in serenity, rest in one's soul. Praise God. In the lost category, ultimate destruction and eternal punishment. If you die living independent of God, He doesn't want this to happen. But you make your own choice to live independently of him, and he honors your choice. And if you take that resistance and that stubbornness to the grave, he will continue to honor your choice in eternity. And he doesn't want that to happen, but he'll honor your choice. The gain category, when we walk with the Lord, there's eternal bliss and reward in heaven. Reward in this life and reward in heaven. I'm not done, almost done, but not quite. In the lost category, um, I, I'm actually changing this up a little bit on, on this screen in the lost category. Because when you walk with Christ, we have to factor in that when you walk with Christ, you're probably going to lose some friends. Okay, There's probably going to be some persecution. And some people are probably gonna, going to exclude you when you were part of the in crowd before they will exclude you now. So you have to factor that in, that that walking with Christ, you have to understand that there's a bit of a price to pay when you walk with Christ in that regard. But look at the gain side. When you do that, and you get mistreated for Christ's sake, there's the honor of God that he blesses you with in this life, and then also treasures in heaven. Praise God. Um, in the lost category, when you walk independently of God, um, there's repeated mistakes and foolish decisions. Man, whew, I can attest to that. Before I came to the Lord, my goodness, I can't, we'd be here all day if I was to start remembering all the dumb decisions that I made, thinking that I was all that. And then the destruction that it brought into my life You know, repeated mistakes, foolish decisions Whereas when you give up your right to do things your own way And you begin to walk with the Lord There's wisdom that's available to you through His Word And through the direction of His Holy Spirit And then light upon your path You'll know what to do You'll know what to do in each and every situation Through the the, uh, guidance of His Divine Word and His Holy Spirit Okay? And then uh, one more for you here in each category. Um, in the lost category, there's a vague sense of dissatisfaction or emptiness, even when everything's going your way. You think that, wow, look at all the, the movie stars and the, 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 the musical artists, people who are very successful, people who are very successful in business, um, CEOs of Fortune 500 companies. And, uh, you know, the the super rich. Why is it that they get to the pinnacle of success, and then for whatever reason it's still not enough, and they get addicted to drugs and alcohol, why would they do that when they've got everything they want? Why would they do that? Because we know that material possessions without the blessing of God in your life is never enough. It's never enough. Now, material possessions with the blessing of God can be a wonderful thing. But money, possessions, fame, all that, without the blessing of God, it's never enough. And that's why they go on to get addicted to all kinds of stuff because they're trying to fill a hole in their soul that really can only be filled with the presence of God. Praise God. And then, in the gain category, rather than a vague sense of dissatisfaction or emptiness, there's the presence of God in one's life that leads to fulfillment and peace, and a sense of purpose in your life. Amen? So I want to just give you a differentiation right here uh, from the book of Proverbs of those who live independently of his word and those who walk dependent upon his word. And that's um, described very concisely here in Proverbs 22.5. In the paths of the wicked are snares and pitfalls, but those who would preserve their life stay far from them. In other words, those who would preserve their life to stay far from them, walk with the Lord, do things His way. Uh, you know, and a lot of people, I don't know, some people almost would insert in the first part of that, in the paths of the righteous are snares and pitfalls. That's the way a lot of people feel like that Christians live and are supposed to live. Now, again, do we have problems, challenges, temptations, and persecutions? Yes. But the Bible is very clear. When you walk with the Lord, there's benefits. And when you walk independently of the Lord, there is snares and pitfalls. In other words, I like to say it this way, there's landmines. There's landmines. And you're going to step on a lot of them when you're independent of God's word. But when you live according to God's word, this this is your landmine sweeper right here. You figure out, hey... I shouldn't do that. I shouldn't say that. I shouldn't go that way because you know the word of God and you avoid stepping on landmines. Praise the Lord. And then in Proverbs 3.33, it says this, The Lord's curse is on the house of the wicked, but he blesses the home of the righteous. He blesses the home of the righteous. Hallelujah. All right. Praise God. I'm almost done. Here's the verse that I quoted to you earlier. I want you to put your eyes on it this time. Ephesians 5.14, Wake up, O sleeper, and rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. And that mirrors something that Charles Spurgeon said. I find myself quoting Charles Spurgeon a lot these days. No, I've never actually sat down and read an entire Charles Spurgeon sermon. I think he was before the time of recordings. But I've never actually sat down and read an entire Charles Spurgeon sermon. But man, his his one-liners are unbelievable. I mean, he has some of the best one-liners any preacher I think I've ever heard. So I'm finding myself finding and using a lot of those these days. And the one that I found that relates to this passage right here and to our topic today about the happiness paradox is encompassed very nicely in this very short line from Charles Spurgeon. There is nothing in the law of God, he says, that will rob you of happiness. It only denies you that which would cost you sorrow. Man, that is so true. That is so true. See, folks, listen, God is not trying to rob you of enjoyment. He's trying to bring you to a place of great blessing. But you'll never get there unless you learn to cooperate with him. See, you parents, um, you know that when you have rules for your children, you're not trying to cramp their style, right? You're trying to keep them from harming themselves, right? And you're trying to position them for a blessed life in the years to come as they go out on their own. You're trying to keep them from harming themselves. So you're training them, and you're trying to help them to have a blessed life later on. So that's exactly what God is trying to do with you and me, is to give us a blessed life and to keep us from harming ourselves. So this is my closing scripture for today, one that we're very familiar with, one that our church kind of has built our ministry on, and that's this: Jesus speaking in John 10:10. The thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. I have come that they may have life and that they may have it, how? More abundantly. More abundantly. More abundantly. abundantly. That's what God has in mind for you. But we'll never get there as long as we hang on to our own selfish, self-serving, me-centered way of doing things. When you can lay down your life and take up your cross to follow him, paradoxically, you will find true life. And that's the paradox of happiness. You hang on to your own life, your own, your own ways, strangely, happiness and fulfillment evades you. But when you lay down your life and you take up your cross to follow him, paradoxically, happiness chases you down. Fulfillment chases you down. Blessing chases you down. That is the happiness paradox. Stand with me and let's pray, please.